Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. Hello everyone and thanks for tuning back in to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. This month I spoke with Lieutenant Colonel Ross Moy, an emergency medicine and pre-hospital emergency medicine consultant with the British Army and clinical director of MERT training. We had a really interesting chat about Ross's experience in military and civilian emergency medicine, pre-hospital trauma care, human factors, medical education and loads more. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. For those of you who don't already follow Ross on Twitter, his handle is at Ross underscore Moy. And for those of you who listen to the episode and think the military medicine life is a bit of them, you can find the link to the British Army Medical Services recruitment team in the show notes. Uh, before that, we all know it wouldn't be a real podcast intro without sponsorship and advertising. And since I'm sad and essentially sponsor myself, shout out to Premed. Here it is. We've just launched our brand new pre-hospital and emergency department ECG course. It's a three-levelled acute ECG interpretation course mapped to the HCPC, paramedic and NMC nursing standards of proficiency, as well as the RCM EM trainee and ECACP curricula. Each level is a full day of face-to-face teaching delivered by experienced and specialist paramedics at Fruitworks at Fond Coffee in Canterbury, Kent. Level 1 and 2 dates are now available and the course pre-learning is available completely free of charge, whether you attend the course or not, on our website. So if you're interested in learning more, please head over to www.prem-ed.com forward slash p-h-e-d-e-c-s and I'll stick that link in the show notes also. All right, let's get into the episode. Right, thanks everyone for joining me again. Uh, we're on episode six of the Pre-Hostel podcast and today I am speaking to Lieutenant Colonel Ross Moy. Ross, thanks for speaking to me. Not at all, thank you for having me. 
Um, I wonder if I could ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners and just let us know a bit about a bit about your clinical background and about your experience um, uh, today, if that's right. Yeah, of course. So uh, I'm a, an emergency medicine and pre-hospital consultant. I work in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Glasgow and also fly with the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service, which provides a combination of HEMS care and also does critical care retrievals to the, the Highlands and Islands of Scotland. Um, I'm a serving regular army medical officer. Uh, I did my training up in Dundee and then I did I bounced around the country uh, doing a few bits. Uh, did a couple of years as a regimental doc along the way to the Queen's Royal Lancers uh, and I've deployed uh, ooh, I think a total of five deployments, uh, one to Iraq, uh, two to Afghanistan, one in the hospital and one in the, the role of MERS doing pre-hospital care uh, to on deployed ops and then a couple of other smaller operations subsequently. Um, what else can I tell you about me? Um, that's probably about it professionally. Uh, I also now run the training side of MERS. So my, my other military job is I train all the the people who are going to provide specialist pre-hospital care and operations. Uh, so I'm the clinical director of that MERS course that's run out of RAF Prize Norton. And that keeps me busy enough. Yeah, nice. All right, thanks for that. And so did you do um, kind of civilian A&E training first and then join the military or, or were you always a military person? No, I did it the other way around. Um, so the system has changed a little bit but when i came through the the military sponsored people through the last second half of medical school so they they sponsored me for the last half of my training uh on the proviso that i would go and work for them for a couple of years so i had to take two years out of my specialist training to then pay them back and that was the time that i was a regimental doc and then i dropped into emergency medicine training through the military uh i did i tried to do general practice for a year but um i think it became fairly clear that GP and I were not desperately well suited to one another. So uh, emergency, emergency medicine is. So I did, I mean, I've done the standard, you know, emergency medicine path, training pathway that anyone else would have done. Uh, it just happens that my employer is the, the military rather than the, the National Health Service. Uh, Pre-hospital wise, I'm a bit too old to have done the, the, the formal FEM training pathway that's run now uh, from subspecialty training. So I did my training by doing fellowships. I did a fellowship with Thames Valley Air Ambulance and fellowship with the Emergency Medical Retrieval Service. And then the, the Royal College of Service of Edinburgh were kind enough to agree that that amounted to a um, effectively the equivalent of a training pathway and that's why they gave me the uh, the, the, the accreditation that they did. Okay nice so how long have you been doing the uh, civilian pre-hospital care the HEM stuff in the UK? So, uh, so I started doing that properly I mean I, I've kind of chopped in and out of it uh, because it was harder to do as a trainee um, so I've done it properly since about 2015 uh, so I did a fellowship with Thames Valley Air Ambulance and then I worked for them for five years while I was a consultant in Oxford. And then I've, I moved up to Glasgow about two months ago. And I've been working with the MRS since I came up there. Nice. Nice. Thanks for that. And so in terms of the um, so the MERT stuff, so that's Medical Evacuation Response Team, is that right? Medical Emergency Response Team. Oh. So it, 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 it so started close. off as, oh, it's close enough. Um, <laughs> the, way, the way it used to work, it, so the concept's quite old. It started off working in the, the Balkans when we were deployed over there. The, the Royal Air Force would have usually a Puma aircraft with a paramedic or a nurse in the back that was able to respond to you know incidents, and that was called the Incident Response Team. And then and that, that system ported itself across to Iraq quite well because the timelines were relatively short. The problem occurred in Afghanistan when there were British troops in the northeast of Helmand province, and that's a long old schlep. I mean, that was probably a 90-minute helicopter flight at some, to okay. some of the furthest flung locations. And it became clear that, you know, good as the flight nurses and paramedics were, there just wasn't enough capability in the team um, to manage a really sick patient for a prolonged transfer. Mm -hmm. And that's why it developed into this medical emergency response team, which 
and certainly for that deployment it was a team of four rather than a team of one or two so it became and, and one of those was a physician to provide critical care um, right yeah because i think on, i've seen transit you know i've seen videos and and some information about the training so is it so like like say one physician two paramedics and a nurse is that right that was the that was the afghan model um okay. and, and that was mostly because most of what we were dealing with was was with large blast injuries so you generally mm-hmm. have two clinicians whose primary job it was to stop bleeding uh and then two who could focus on this airway breathing side of the critical care um it's developed a bit further than that now in that as with with any operation the the bums on seats i suppose become an issue so generally now we deploy in teams of three or two and we probably wouldn't deploy with a team of four unless we were doing another very high intensity operation which hopefully fingers crossed we're not going to be doing anytime soon yeah okay and i guess the other thing so you mentioned the kind of long flight times and things i guess the other thing that comes with that is the potential for multiple casualties is that right yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, because we were using a bigger aircraft that could carry more people, you know, having a, a larger team meant you could split down to manage, you know, multiple casualties, which certainly did happen. I mean, the Chinook, I don't know if you've seen a Chinook aircraft, but they're, they're enormous. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the size of a bus, but it fills up very quickly once you put um, air crew and force protection people and all the kit and everything else that goes with it. So suddenly you, you end up with a lot of people and not a lot of space. Yeah. And so how many patients, so what was the, you know, what was the capacity in, ter- in terms of patients and what was the kind of normal amount of... Yeah, it depended whether it was it so much because obviously things changed enormously. Because I think I think we mm. were deployed out of Afghanistan for certainly providing merit cover for about six years, and and my part in that was tiny. I mean, it's a huge team of people who provided it over the t- over the years. Um, I believe the record was seventeen, although most of those okay, were wow. most of those would be walking wounded. You wouldn't get seventeen very smashed up um, casualties, and I, yeah, I, yeah. I, the maximum I had to deal with was three, so I had it quite easy. Um, but you could normally get three to four stretcher casualties in without too much sweat. Um, after that, it started to get pretty tight. And the amount you can do, even with a team of four, starts to become pretty limited. You know, if you've only got one casualty, you can do a lot with a team of four. But if, you, if, you're, if you're all splitting down, it becomes much more about making sure that nobody bleeds to death and everyone gets some pain relief and anything else you can manage yeah. over that, you're doing pretty well. Yeah, that's that's my kind of motto for looking after single patients. To be honest, I say. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, I, I guess so. In terms of the capabilities, then, so if you did have kind of one patient there, um, yeah. human factors and, and environment aside, what are the kind mm. of um, what what was the intention in terms of capabilities you can provide? So you mentioned obviously the, the addition of physicians probably to provide a higher um, level of care. I'm guessing, and so um, what what, yeah, what kind just... of the what the capabilities that you can provide with that team? So with that team, so if the we, we, we sort of developed the model. So we moved slightly away from the sort of the standard teaching of ABC in that most of our salvageable patients, the big thing we were worried about was external catastrophic bleeding, either from gunshot injuries or blast. So we would work, first of all, to try and stop that as our priority. So that's why we developed this CABC model. Um, and that's where we were trying to, manage catastrophic hemorrhage as quickly as we possibly could and then provide decent analgesia blood product resuscitation a bit of extra oxygen and if necessary we could provide other sort of higher level critical care interventions so we could provide general anesthesia we could provide thoracostomies um and a few other bits i mean i think people tried doing a thoracotomy but it wasn't hugely successful uh, although I think we did have one survivor from a, an in-flight thoracotomy, but generally we would find that the kind of patients we were looking after, you know, you weren't dealing with stabbing patients. You were generally dealing with mm. non-compressible gunshot wounds or you're dealing with blast patients. So that, that sort of level of, of blood product resuscitation plus minus you know, intubation and ventilation were, were sort of the, the primary things that we could do. 
Okay, yeah, that's interesting. And maybe we come on to the blood product stuff um, shortly, if that's all right, because it's something that's coming into civilian practice a lot more, I think, and it's a, I don't know a lot about it, but I think it's an interesting topic to touch on. It is, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly something that seems to be pushing further and further forward. I mean, more and more services are, are sort of pushing blood pre-hospitally. Um, what we still haven't quite, I think, got a handle on is what the, the correct balance is. I mean, we, we try to give balanced transfusions using packed red cells and fresh frozen plasma along with tranexamic acid. Logistically, that's quite difficult to supply outside. I mean, ideally, we'd give everybody fresh whole blood. I think the evidence for that's reasonably good. However, so is, this, the logist- sorry, is this in the, the military side, did you use that combination? So we, we, we can do fresh whole blood in a military setting. We probably wouldn't do it on a merit setting. We could do that in a, in a light surgical team. So if we have a, a surgical team at, at reach providing, you know, um, surgical care to, to a group of people working a long way away from, you know, uh, an evacuation point, then we would have a system where we basically would use the team um, or the, the soldiers around us as as a walking donor panel, and we could use them. We could take blood from them and transfuse it into their colleagues. Um, not something blood, I'd say in civilian practice. Anytime, no, so. not something you do because every, you know generally, generally the the blood that we would get in the um, uh, in the civilian setting would be from the National Blood Transfusion Service, and because of the logistics of the way they work. It's blood component therapy. Now, there's been some work ongoing. I believe London and Hems have led on this to use cold whole blood, and that's got okay. the potential to be, you know, a useful thing to be carrying further forward. Um, I suppose it, it's going to—it's it's probably always going to be a relatively rare intervention, just because the it, it's expensive and there's lots of legalities around who can and can't administer blood. Um, I believe people are working on that because at the moment it's a—it's a physician-only um, mm. intervention, and obviously it's, that, a, and it's a human tissue. It's like yeah. a, it comes under that, doesn't it? Kind of organ donation. Yeah. Effectively, that you are, yeah. yeah, you are, you are transplanting tissue from one person into another, and, and there's a lot of legalities around how, how, and when you can do that, and how you organise it. None of it's over, you know, none of it's completely insurmountable, but it just means that you've got to be a little bit careful about how far you push it. I think the bigger problem is that it's, um, it, it's expensive and it's a, a rare asset. And if you try, you know, there's never going to be a setting where you're going to have blood product resuscitation available in every frontline ambulance. The, the blood transfusion service simply couldn't provide it. And it's not a common enough intervention for that. I was going to say, um, and think, you know, so in, in my practice at the moment, obviously I'm paramedic, I, I work by myself. And so we don't have that capability, mm-hmm. as you kind of mentioned, mm-hmm. but um, because of the patients I see, I interact with the air ambulance service quite often. And actually, yeah. in my last couple of years of experience, I've not seen, I mean, I can count on one hand the amount of patients I've seen transfused. And yeah. I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Again, I don't really know the literature too well. But my understanding is the the evidence for, um, like you say, it's kind of complex in terms of the evidence for different types of blood product transfusion. And I think, am mm-hmm. I right in saying, it, depending on the type of product, um there's not necessarily a big save in terms of mortality um it can prolong it can improve patients um presentation at hospital but doesn't always improve mortality Mm -hmm. um is that correct i think so i mean yeah, I mean, again, you, you probably have to ask a, a proper <laughs> academic expert who, 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 yeah, you are. Um, a proper academic expert will be able to tell you exactly what the literature says. But um, my understanding of it is that the, it's very hard with almost, like, as with almost any intervention, it's very hard to tease out which specific intervention it does that makes absolutely the difference. Um, yeah. So packed red cells have their own issues. And, and you know, the um, there is a trial that's due to publish shortly on this uh, um Refill. Name of which escapes me. Refill. Um, yeah, yeah. And I'd be interested to see what, what results they publish because they're comparing packed red cells with saline. And I'm not sure that, you know, 
that's necessarily going to be the the ideal solution. But it'll be interesting to see what what results they come out with. Certainly in on Merton and Thames Valley, we were using packed red cells and fresh frozen plasma to try and provide a slightly more balanced transfusion, particularly trying to provide some oxygen carrying capability, but also to um, help with coagulopathy of trauma. And that that's an interesting you know an interesting dilemma because packed red cells are you know acidic um, and they contain citrates so they bind calcium so there is a potential for if you're not careful to make um, possibly patients more coagulopathic with packed red cells um, whereas you were using fresh frozen plasma to try and replace clotting factors but um, it's still not quite as simple as you know knowing that's absolutely the right answer um, to go with it because there are other other bits that go with you know certainly in in hospital what we would use is a a rotem we'd use thromboelastography to find out exactly which clotting factors the patient needs and replace that and when you're pre-hospitally we're probably in the foreseeable future we're probably still going to be doing empirical transfusion rather than um, targeted yeah and that i guess my other question with that is um the cliche thing you often hear i don't know if it is a cliche but it's that um the military experience is um kind of military-aged males who generally don't have medical history and are quite fit and well uh, Mm -hmm. physiologically and so you Mm -hmm. kind of get a type of patient that's going to have a blood transfusion whereas Mm -hmm. in civilian practice obviously there's a lot more kind of older trauma patients with kind of complex uh, medical Mm -hmm. histories i appreciate um the kind of military experience isn't all treating military age males because you deal, I'm sure you deal with civilian casualties as well. But how much does that kind of go into the blood project mm. transfusion kind of thing? Because I imagine in, in civilian practice, like I say, in my experience, it's often um, older people have been hit by a car or, or mm. patients, you know, like they've got these medical histories and they're not necessarily physiologically yeah. well prior to the yeah incident. i mean it's it's it, it is it is a very different i mean it's not just you know it's not just men we're te- you know, treating i mean 10 percent of the military is female and that is increasing so you know yeah, it's, it's, really it's not just old-fashioned things um, thing, isn't it <laughs> yeah no that's all right um so there's 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 still but you're right we are generally treating younger and probably more physiologically consistent people but um you're also dealing with a different spectrum of injury because you're dealing with blast injury rather than necessarily blunt trauma. And there is some evidence that blast specifically as an injury set produces a different physiological response to a lot of other trauma. So that that's a bit that you've got to be careful about interpreting um, a lot of the military data with. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. You know, civilian trauma tends to be more heterogeneous. The patients are not the same uh, in terms of their baseline physiological state. And therefore it's not quite so clear um, what to do. I mean, I must admit, Certainly by the time we left Afghanistan, I think we were very, very slick at dealing with the patient who stood on an improvised explosive device, had lost two limbs, a significant amount of blood. And we were very, very, very well drilled at how to manage that patient. There was almost a recipe that you could you could do. And, it, you know, people compared it to a sort of Formula One pit stop. But I think that's that's probably not a bad analogy because, you're, you know, the, when you change the tires on a car, it's the same way every time, so you can practice it. Um, whereas my experience from civilian pre-hospital care is that you're right, the you know the the age range varies so much, the mechanisms vary, the amount of energy transfer varies enormously, and so you're not quite it's not quite as easy to just have a, a sort of formulaic response to the same thing every time. Yeah, I completely agree with that as well because we certainly there, there's been a bit of a thing about this pit stop model in teaching resuscitation, in mm-hmm. certainly in my. Um, service and i think in in other local services and it's something that doesn't sit well with me because although i can appreciate that that is a good analogy in um, Mm. the kind of military experience i find that like you say in in civilian practice often um it's not a well-drilled team because often it's a kind of 
you arrive and you're working with people you haven't seen for weeks or you, you know you've never met them before mm. you don't know them and so mm. and there's kind of competing interest for who should be doing what or well not competing interest but you, you know you don't know those roles beforehand and so I find that no, model no, doesn't right. necessarily fit um, the kind of human factors of pre-hospital care um, yeah um, and so I guess there's a, a difference there yeah I think that's a that's a, a very sensible point I mean it, it's it's something that we and it, again it's something that so we were very aware of um, in terms of Ali we used to do a lot of outreach work uh, my, my colleagues in critical care paramedics used to do a lot of outreach work with the local crews um, and actually that we found that really helped the human factors of the job work much more smoothly because if they had a clear understanding of what uh, a critical care team would would do for a certain patient it meant that they could almost be primed to do it and I certainly had jobs where a crew had been through the training that we had we'd done and had a really clear idea of what needed to be happening and so you would turn up on the job and the patient was on an ambulance trolley at the right height with two lots of access and the oxygen bottles ready and actually you it's almost you're sort of a bit sort of oh okay well, well I'll, I'll just pop the tube in now because there's not really you yeah. know everything else everything else had been done you know the scene had been been organized in such a way that literally we just had to turn up and do do our little bit yeah. um but you're absolutely right you know it's that that sort of drilling is very hard to spread across a whole ambulance service i mean it's it's very interesting working up here in Scotland where the the geography is much much more spread out and so you know the the level of exposure of crews to major trauma varies hugely you know even in the the bigger inner city areas of, of Edinburgh and Glasgow their exposure to major trauma is not high and when you get out into the the more rural areas you know yes they see some fairly unpleasant car crashes but they're pretty rare and so you know and it's very it would be very hard for us as a service to get around every single ambulance station in Scotland and provide you know a sort of how to work with hems um teaching yeah. session and i guess that's an interesting point to touch on as well because um not only that but it's not you know the major trauma is such a small part of the standard ambulance services work now and so there's yeah. only so much time they can dedicate it to it even mm-hmm. though it tends to be a popular thing to kind of practice and learn and and the mm-hmm. other thing i've found is you know working now as a critical care paramedic and responding or responding to those incidents the intentionally responding to the, those incidents my experience is still relatively low and certainly my, mm-hmm. my trauma experience I would not say I've got a lot of trauma experience I still find I'm not amazingly comfortable with trauma scenarios um uh, because mm-hmm. of a, a kind of lack of exposure and that's as someone that is tasked specifically to that and so then you look at the non-specialist crews um or specialists in other areas and they're attending mm. those, you know, one case a year or, or something like that. And so it mm. just doesn't take up that, mm. that much of their mind. And so what I find in practice is a lot of, you know, 90% of those jobs are the human factors of dealing with your own stress and um, being able to communicate mm. effectively. Mm. And and so I guess it's different to that, even working on HEMS or, or working in a, a military setting where you're getting more exposure and you're kind of all those little things like, not being stressed or you know not being overly stressed being able to think yeah. more more clearly because mm-hmm. of that exposure um mm-hmm. i guess there's a big difference there isn't there or is that there is although <laughs> you know the military you know i don't know it's interesting because you know, the military aspect of major trauma you know dialed off a lot i mean let's say we've been we've been out of afghanistan for five or six years now so it's kind of you know in some ways almost ancient history um you know, militarily, we've moved on so much from that. You know, the, 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 it is, the military is a young organization. People change over very quickly. And so we've got, you know, fewer and fewer people, apart from the old farts like me, who, who've got experience of that kind of thing. Um, I suppose, and nowadays, actually, the, the difficult thing is that in, in a low-intensity deployment, it's harder to keep people current, as, as you say, because if, if, if you haven't got the through, through, through flow of work, 
it's hard to keep people well enough trained and you know well enough managed to 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 be ready to deal with stuff on the one day of the deployment that it's necessary so that's probably a bigger a bigger challenge for us nowadays than than ever it was but i think it's i don't know it's difficult because you the only real i think the only real you know, advice on it is just to teach people to just slow down and do the basics well and if and not not overcomplicate things you know treat the the physiology that you find and if you can do that then actually most people are okay um and as long as you mm. keep it relatively relatively simple then you you know try not to overcomplicate it and things generally work you know much more smoothly like that yeah no i agree and it the, the thing i find is um so like i say you kind of i, I did my um post-grad in critical care and mm-hmm. There's a lot of practical, it's a very practical course. And so there's a lot of practical scenarios and you do all this stuff and you, mm-hmm. you, um, drill all these skills and then mm-hmm. it just doesn't translate always into reality as well. I find, you know, because dealing with a patient that's emotional, emotional mm-hmm. family members, um, having that thing in the back of your head, that this is actually a patient and not a scenario and, and all those kind of little things feed in, um, and just add to the stress levels. And yeah. then I think that's where exposure is just such an important thing. Um, because you can, yeah. Obviously, practicing is great, and you can practice as much as you as you can. But mm-hmm. um, having that exposure and all those kind of subtle influences mm-hmm. on your stress, um, and being able to kind of deal with those, I think um, it just there's no replacement for that. Uh, there is. I mean, I think you can you can short I mean, scenario based training. I think is is very useful for helping you deal with some things. I suppose the the the, the weakness of scenario based training, I suppose, is that once you've you've done a bit of it, it becomes quite easy to see where the scenario is going and what's expected of you. Um, and I think the other there's a, a couple of bits that are slightly you've got to be careful of with scenario based training are that people tend to overdo very very rare interventions. You know, people often end up with scenario based training that ends up being a perimortem C section or a surgical airway when actually those those are you know very very rare interventions and they come up more much more commonly in scenario based training i think the other thing is it's hard what's hard to simulate is just the everyday friction of just you know doing the job you know just moving around the scene uh, organizing scene or, as you say organizing families and all the other people that are are at a scene whereas mm. generally on a you know in a um you know, in a scenario, you don't have that extra friction. So it's great for training some things, but it is, it is, I'm afraid, absolutely not perfect. No, which, and you know, there is no um, perfect solution, I'm sure. So in, in your, because, so at the moment, your role is um, director of training for Matt, is that right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I sort of, I'm the, I provide the clinical input to the, the training clinical course, yeah. yeah. And so are you involved in kind of um, establishing those scenarios and, and um, kind of preparing scenarios and putting people through it? Yeah, yes, so, I wonder, yeah. so I guess what we're kind of discussing is the kind of stress inoculation side of things, isn't mm. it? Um, and so how do you how do you deal with that with yeah. pa- it, it, people it, who are having less exposure? Yeah, and it's it's really really you know, we've had lots and lots of discussions over the, over the last few years about how how best to do this because it's not easy. Um, actually, we had uh, I'm going to name check Stephen Hearns now, who's kind enough to come down and he's done a lot of work on this on sort of stress oh, management he, and pressure management. He, he was kind big, enough. Um, yes, uh, peak performance and pressure. Yeah that's yeah. it yeah, yeah yeah um and it was it was really good of him to come down and, and sort of give us some, some of his thoughts on how to sort of teach people to manage pressure because you're right you know there, there previously was a when the when the operational tempo was high it was very easy you just drop people in it for for two weeks and then they they, they had enough exposure and it was fine mm. whereas nowadays we're trying to teach people in a scenario and it, it's hard to simulate the same sorts of pressure um i mean we've written a scenario and also we've written the scenarios in a way to be more realistic because you know when Merck first started, almost everything we saw was blast uh, with some gunshot injury. Whereas now, 
you know the, the range of things that we're seeing on deployed ops is very different. I mean, it's a lot more blunt trauma. You know, we're back to because we haven't got troops in contact every day, but people are driving around in vehicles. So you know, people have the same sort of problems with vehicles that um, that you have in the UK. Mm. We're seeing more people with um, a medical presentation. I mean, heat injury, for example. You know, friends who. So we, we've got um, we've currently got a team deployed in Kenya providing uh, forward air medical support to the the training unit based out there, and they see a lot of snake bites. They see a lot of heat injuries. So there's a lot more medical presentations, um, oh, and it's yeah, not yeah. just the sort of recipe based trauma. So part of the the thing we try and do is kind of give people access to more you know more more realistically simulated case mix um, of what they might actually you know encounter rather than just necessarily hammering people on you know the, the the big ied which is thankfully less and less common yeah no fair enough and so when when people are doing this training i'm pres- presumably um you, you've got different specialties so like you say you mentioned mm-hmm. nurses paramedics um and doctors is there a kind of standard uh training course that people go through for that or is there a few yes there's, there's, there's one there's one course yeah there's, there's there's one course and generally we will bring through a, a mixture of so we divide people up. We use the um, NHS skills or the um, sorry the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh's framework. So we we divide our practitioners into level eight practitioners who are you know doctor consultant level doctors, and then yeah. level five practitioners who are our nurses paramedics. Um, because of the way that things work in the regular military, we we don't have any regular uh, CCPs or critical care paramedics or nurses, yeah, yeah. but we we do have quite a few from the reserves, which is and that and that's that's always interesting because we're trying to at the moment the the sort of the SOPs we write are for relatively relatively less experienced paramedics and nurses and actually when you have a a very experienced ccp turn up um that that kind of changes the team dynamic quite a lot which is really interesting to see um sorry so um yeah it's it's also although they do the same course we try and run it in as realistic a way that we can so we will generally run the teams with usually one doctor and two level five practitioners and we mix up the, the the nurses and the paramedics but we do also give some scenarios where the there is there's not, it's entirely a level five team because it's quite realistic for them to deploy you know without you know again the the mix of of deployments we cover is much broader and there will be operations where, or exercises where the, there's no real need to have the the all singing all dancing critical care team but mm. um there's the, so there's a need to to have a a more easily deployable team and a level five team sometimes meets the bill very nicely. So we have, we'll have some scenarios where they're based on that and we'll have some scenarios where they'll start off as a, a level five team and then we'll feed in a level eight person a little bit later on so they can practice that, um, you know, doing their own, doing the level five guys can do the assessment and then they can build on, build onto it with a critical care piece, you know, but they are bringing the the doctor into the scenario that they have been running rather than everyone arriving in one and that changes the the dynamic the team dynamic quite significantly and i think that's really good for everybody to practice yeah yeah absolutely and i I guess i mean i guess you the that you you learn a lot of lessons from doing that for civilian practice as well i'm sure um Um, you do i think yeah i mean it's it's you know there's no such thing as bad training you know unless you're, you're getting it really wrong there's no there's no wrong way to to gain experience and everything that we will do hopefully brings you know gives people skills that they can take back into their into their own teams i mean the the stuff that we do in the merc course is 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 different in some ways to what people will do in their in their sort of civilian nhs roles i mean i i, I don't know how if you what your understanding was but almost all of us have a, a role within the NHS and within the military. So, you know, for example, I work in an NHS hospital with an NHS retrieval service, as do all of my colleagues. We spend some time in the NHS and sometimes not. Um, so there's definitely bits of the skills that we can bring to our NHS practice, but equally you do have to be 
cognizant of the fact that the way the NHS works is very different, as you say, and particularly in terms of how the teams are put together. Mm. Um, you you will have you will will not have the same consistent team day in day out for for a whole deployment, which is what we would generally do. You will turn up for a shift one day and you will be working with one person, and you will turn up for a shift the next day and you'll be working with a different person. And so there's there's much more of a need in that setting to try and standardise practice because if your team's chopping and changing all the time. You, you do, whereas when we're generally deploying and practicing with the same team all the time, we do have SOPs that we get people to, to work to, but you can, because you, you work much more familiarly with the same people all the time, it's, yeah, yeah. it's a lot easier to get people used to how certain, you know, how the, their own individual team is going to function and which, so there's, it, there's no need to be quite so didactic about who will do what, because generally teams will work that out themselves through the process of doing their own pre-deployment training. And then, you know, once they get into theatre and they start to work together and, you know, train together in theatre, they can practice these things uh, as they wish. Yeah, yeah. And so I wonder, because you mentioned it, it's, it's probably worth touching on because, you know, my understanding isn't very good. Um, in, in terms of the military model then, so you have mm-hmm. obviously the the, uh, the MERT team will go and pick up a patient and evacuate mm-hmm. them and bring them back. Do you have kind of field hospitals, main hospitals? How does it work in terms of the, the triage and treatment? So the initial treatment will usually be done, so far forward, the initial treatment will be done by usually a combat medical technician or medical assistant uh, for the Royal Navy and Royal Marines. And they are, I suppose they're trained to about ambulance technician level. Um, okay. Some of them are some of them are paramedics and some of them are further trained and they would generally be deployed far forward with the subunits. Depending on the operation, they may also have a, a, a non-specialist doctor, so a, a, a what we call a um, general duties medical officer, so a relatively junior medical officer, or indeed a general practitioner, mm-hmm. and they would be providing the initial treatment. And again, it depends on exactly where they are. For example, sometimes they might be providing that treatment out on the ground. Sometimes they might be providing it in a, a small forward operating base. And then Mert's role would be to augment that. So we would take we take the next part of it. So and again, it, it varies from operation to operation. In Afghanistan, our role was generally to fly to the point of wounding where somebody else would secure a landing site for and we would load the patients on board but more and more these days we're either we're perhaps in the forward operating base and so for example the 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 team would would manage the patient on the ground and bring them back to us and we would stabilize and provide additional treatment while an evacuation platform was coming to us so we're not necessarily air-based the way that we always used to be um, sure. So, for example, if we're moving somebody, we might be sat in the forward operating base. We'll we'll manage the patient, give them some blood products, some advanced allergies, and potentially consider intubating and ventilating them while an aircraft's on its way to us. Then that aircraft lands. We would load the patient on board the aircraft and transport them to to another hospital or to a field hospital. In terms of okay. the field hospital, we we yeah, I mean we've got various sizes of of facility that we can use. So that we can use from a team of about fifteen, uh, and that can provide damage control surgery. So the idea of a team that small is that a patient can get life-saving um, hemorrhage control surgery and massive decontamination. So they can have obviously dead tissue removed, you know, heavy bleeding managed, blood product resuscitation packaged, and then but remain anaesthetized to then be transferred back to a bigger field hospital. And then a, a, to be a field hospital proper, that would be about, it's about 130 staff, 120, 130 staff. Uh, and that would be was a bigger facility that has a bit more, particularly has the facility to hold patients. So our very smallest facilities, they, they're designed to in, perform some interventions and then have the patient immediately moved away at what we refer to as the back door. They, they, they move straight out the back door to a larger facility. A field hospital proper would have the ability to hold a patient. And we would, most modern operations, we would generally expect the patient to be held in the field hospital for a fairly short period of time, ideally no more than 48, 72 hours. 
uh, and we would hold we would usually build a field hospital somewhere where we can get a large aircraft so an RAF Voyager or C17 could then land sure. uh, load the patient and then move them with what we call a critical carrier support team so they're they're specific that's specifically a Royal Air Force duty uh, and they provide a, a mobile ITU I suppose in the sky and then they will do the, what we call the strategic evacuation and that would generally back to Birmingham and then in Birmingham you would have your definitive surgery so the surgery you do forward is generally very simple it is just mm. control of bleeding removal of massive decontamination and then provision of resuscitation and then transfer and then the definitive surgery would happen much later down the line once they're a bit more stable and because that model of so um early blood transfusion TXA like you mentioned and then mm. the concept of kind of damage control resuscitation that was all something that was developed in in relatively recent years, wasn't it? In in these conflicts, and has has kind of come into civilian practice from that. Yeah. Is that right? Or well, yes and no. It's interesting. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it seems every time we go to war, we relearn the lessons that we we learned the last time. Um, you know, the provision of blood product far forward was was certainly done during the Second World War. Um, the the airborne troops okay, dropped into Arnhem. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's really funny how these things work. The airborne troops yeah. that dropped into Arnhem certainly dropped with glass bottles of uh, of plasma. Which we effectively still okay. use these days. Um, you know, and we they, literally uh, used them recently. Yeah, 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 lyoplast. Yeah, it's very, it's very good <laughs> stuff. Uh, a lot easier to carry around than fresh frozen plasma. Um, so the, but yes, you're right. These these sort of concepts are generally, particularly with damage control surgery. That's very much a, a military concept. The, and it's something that generally, it's interesting how people tend to learn it in an operational context, and then it kind of drifts a little bit because generally in the civilian context, people aren't dealing with sick trauma patients very often, thankfully, uh, unless you're in a very, very busy centre. Central London, possibly Birmingham, are probably the only places in the UK that have the, mm. the throughput of patients to really see that. Um, but yes, that, that ability to see, or just, I mean, again, I'm not a surgeon, so it's difficult for me to pontificate too much about what, what surgeons and anaesthetists want to do. But generally, it's, it's about, sort of the, if by the time someone's been sick for a long time with major trauma, the you want to perform a limited surgery. You really don't want to be doing a definitive procedure early on in their care because all yeah. the time that they're being operated on, they're going to cool down, they're going to lose fluid, and they're harder to, to, to keep physiologically stable. So you really want to do the absolute minimum intervention that you can just to stop them dying and then take them to an intensive care setting where they can be warmed up, filled up, well analgesed, you know, made made physiologically as well as they can so that the next time they need a further procedure they're, they're physiologically in, in the right place to survive it whereas if you try and do a five to six hour operation or to you know completely completely fix someone's um, abdominal injuries you risk having an anatomically perfect operation because you know the good surgeon will sort it all out but unfortunately all of that time the surgeon's working to restore the anatomy the patient's physiology is deteriorating so we rely yeah. very much on our anesthetic colleagues to um, you know, stabilize the physiology as soon as the surgeons have, have you know stopped the, the patient dying if, if that makes sense yeah yeah absolutely definitely makes sense um I guess so. The other thing to to touch on, because we we've spoken about human factors, and I wonder if what what is the difference in in terms of military and civilian practice? Because I can imagine the um, Chinooks from my experience of them flying over my head are pretty loud, um, yeah. and so I can imagine working in the back of them, communication is difficult, and then you have the, all those kind of factors which maybe don't play out in civilian practice as much. Um, yes, I suppose you're right. I mean, there's, there's definitely, it definitely works very differently. Um, the, you know, the environment you work in is, is, you know, generally in a sort of civilian hems environment, we would want to perform all our interventions in, in as permissive a way as we can. And generally, even, even the, the hardest working of scenes, there's not a physical threat to the aircraft or to the, the clinical team. So we would generally be able to 
you know, do whatever stabilization procedures we wanted to do, then load the patient onto the aircraft. And then generally the in-flight section is relatively short and you try not to do very much at all because it's a, it's a difficult environment to work in. As, as you said, you know, it's noisy, but it's, there's, there's more to it than noise. I mean, there's a lot of, there's the way that aircraft move, for example, although having said that, actually, um, people always say aircraft movement, you know, aircraft banking and so on, but unless they're not doing the, the sort of the, the go down quickly, that negative G thing that gives you that horrible mm. feeling in your stomach, yeah, most yeah. aircraft movement actually, is, it's, it's worse in an ambulance than it is in an aircraft, I find, because aircraft banking just makes you a bit heavier. Um, right, whereas okay. moving, moving around in an ambulance tends to make people feel a bit a bit more poorly. Um, so the vibration, with the suspension sorry? on some of them. Yeah, it's just the way especially the suspension. <laughs> um, but partly it's you know, vibration, for example, is a real problem. I mean, uh, vibration is very, very fatiguing. Um, the fact that you have okay. to wear different different personal protective equipment, um, you know, you're having to wear body armor and helmets, um, eye protection, glove, you know, that's very, you know, it's very hot. Although actually, yeah. again, once you're up flying, it cools down quite quickly. Um, and that's certainly a problem for our patients because we're protecting from that. Um the communication is difficult because you're doing it all by radio and sometimes radios don't necessarily work very well. So you have to learn hand signals. And you, you can you can do a lot by not saying a lot. But again, it comes back to that uh, the whole point of having that team that's very well drilled, and, you know, does has practiced this a lot. So you can almost do things without necessarily having to talk very much. Um, mm. So the human factor, you know, but but equally, the thing that makes it easier is the fact that you're working with the same team day in, day out. And that makes the human factors a lot easier. So in some ways, the human factors are harder, but in some ways, the human factors are easier. And there's no... There's there's definitely less than you know bits bits of both I would say that are easier rather than harder. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So you you do you know like in ambulance practice you just don't have all those kind of environmental factors. But but going through mm. this COVID pandemic with the PPE, mm. even just wearing mm. a small amount of PPE, mm-hmm. you for people like myself who have never had that experience of having to wear a lot of PPE, it's mm. amazing the difference that that makes on on. Your ability to communicate, yes, is mm. one thing, but also I think the ability, just kind of wearing a suit and getting really hot and flustered, mm-hmm. um, changes your ability to think properly um, mm-hmm. and um, and make kind of fast, sensible decisions. Um, mm-hmm. And I found it's a, it's a massive impact. It has a massive impact on my practice. I think mm-hmm. um, kind of wearing a lot of PPE and, and being all hot and sweaty, and and again mm-hmm. not being able to communicate. Suddenly, you can't do things like you say do the kind of basics effectively that you kind of relied on and didn't have to think about before mm-hmm. um, yeah i think that's, 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 that's actually a really good analogy because certainly i find through the, the covid pandemic that yeah working even doing relatively straightforward procedures in full ppe is, is really quite difficult um you know tyvek suits are very hot and very uncomfortable to work in having to wear two pairs of gloves reduces your manual dexterity face masks mean it's harder to talk to your colleagues uh and it's harder to read facial expressions so yeah it's it's not a dissimilar experience although it's just you know the emphasis is slightly different but you know, they're both certainly both very hot and certainly that, that's i can imagine it's, it's not quite same as the stress of the uh of the military experience but um it's different i suppose you know people people do these things differently i mean I, i'm not sure that so I, I never found the actual working to be that stressful i guess i was just lucky uh, i think certainly my some of my colleagues would say that the the you know, the, the some bits of it were very stressful. Certainly, being when very busy and very overloaded, I was lucky. I never had that experience of being absolutely maxed out with casualties. But mm. certainly, some of my colleagues have, and I think they found that really challenging to work through. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And um, so, what was my next question? I had another question. Um, ah, yeah, I wonder if I can put you on the spot with a question. Mm. Um, so we we kind of mentioned um, okay. blood, <laughs> blood, TXA, these kind of interventions that come mm. into into civilian practice what would you say is the most 
um, beneficial thing that has been developed in in military practice that's come into civilian care? Mm, that's a really interesting question, and I, I think it's I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to swerve it a bit because I'm not sure <laughs> that there is one single intervention that really makes all. The, I mean, I say, what what we discovered is that it's it's hard to pick out one thing. You know, so many of these it's all about incremental gains, and it, I think the whole the, the thing I think what we've I think we we do quite well is that it's a it's a joined up system where you know everybody works to roughly the same mental model so that the the people providing care right at the start of the process uh, with you know the, have the same treatment objectives as the people right at the end of the process and I think that's really helpful because every because everyone's roughly working to the same sort of script it's just that the, what you can do improves through time that makes life a bit easier because everyone knows roughly what the goals are of treatment, which I think is, is harder to do in a, in the NHS. Um, I mean, certainly some things that have, you know, it's been interesting to see, for example, tourniquets have, you know, I, I can remember, you know, at the start of my medical training being told that tourniquets were anathema, they were the work of the devil and should never be used um, mm. to suddenly people being very, very enthusiastic about them. And then I think, I think I like to think that people in civilian practice have moved slightly away from them. Cause I certainly I do remember there was a time when there was, there was a bit of probably over enthusiasm for the use of tourniquets, and I think we're we're moving away from that, which is good. Um, what else is good? I think that we, do, I think one of the other things that we do quite well is we try very hard to delegate the lowest level at which capability exists, and I think that's a good maxim to work through. You know, and I think we we're a lot more relaxed about moving, you know, about professional boundaries, and I think that's also something that that we could do with better about, you know, saying that certain things are a doctor's job or certain things are a paramedic's job, and actually it's much better to look at it at where does the capability exist to do this. I mean, a good example for that would be we train combat medical technicians who are, you know, say EMTs, EMT basic standard, to uh, perform surgical airways because for years they were sort of vaguely, you know, we, we had vague talks about teaching them to intubate, but actually when it comes right to it, that's actually a really difficult skill to, to perform in, and to mm. maintain that skill. Whereas actually doing a surgical airway for someone who's got you know, severe airway injury actually doing surgical airways technically easier than than intubating them so and we, yeah. we certainly discovered that you know even 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 infantry soldiers with additional training could could manage to put a surgical airway in without really too much difficulty again the difficult bit is the difficult bit you discover is that the doing the procedure is relatively easy but the decision making to do and particularly not to do is a lot more challenging and that's certainly something that that's that, that really does you know that that's the thing i think more experience gives you i think is the confidence not to do things at times yeah, no, I completely agree. And it's something I've thought about a lot um, since going into this specialist role is that actually the interventions, you know, so as a specialist paramedic, we have advanced interventions and, you know, things like surgical airway, thoracostomies and stuff. And the interventions are relatively easy um, mm-hmm. to learn the anatomy and physiology and, and do the intervention and practice it. And and actually providing the intervention is is the easy part of it. But I think, like you say, it's that decision-making um, mm-hmm. and to decide whether you're going to put a hole in someone's chest is kind of a big thing and it's a stressful decision to kind of make if that's not something you're used to. But also, yep. as, as you say, you know, withholding um, to go into my kind of background, which is different to the, to the military one, but kind of withholding... Um, uh, uh, pacemaking for instance mm-hmm. in yeah. someone who's not going to recover and have a good quality mm. of life is, mm. is, a, is a huge decision to make when you have got that intervention and so mm. i guess i guess um it's interesting because you mentioned like the the royal college of surgeons um are quite well known with the with the dip imc for example for mm-hmm. yeah. for um having for putting everyone through one 
uh, career framework, essentially, yeah. or, or framework yeah. of practice, isn't it? And I, th- I think it's an interesting thing that with modern medical care, that's kind of what we're coming to. Um, mm-hmm. And it's something you think about a lot as a as a paramedic starting to dabble in slightly more advanced things mm-hmm. um, and, and those professional boundaries. So how, how, do, how do you see that in, um, in civilian practice? Because as you say, it's the same thing historically. Um, you have this kind of HEMS model that was physician-led and mm-hmm. um, certainly pre-hospitally an, an ambulance model that has a much lower level of intervention for critical mm-hmm. care patients, for instance. But I think, as you mentioned, with the, civi- with the military side, um, I think the civilian practice is starting to change slightly. Um, in yeah. terms of what non-doctors and so nurses, paramedics, physios and people can provide. Um, yes, I mean, I, I think it's it's a good thing, but equally, I do think there's, there's a note of caution in how you do it because for every for every extra, you know, intervention you provide to a team to do, you have to make sure that you're, you're able to make sure people are properly trained to do it, but also they're able to maintain the skill. Mm. And I think that's, that's an area we've got to be sort of fairly hot on. Um, and particularly when you're starting to bring what would normally be considered hospital interventions out to, to the roadside. And that's generally, I mean, I, personally, I think that's the real role of, of doctors in pre-hospital care. You know, there's not very much that we can do that paramedics can't. But the, the difference is that we can do the, the things that are generally hospital-based, because that's where we're bringing those hospital skills out to the road. We're not specialists in pre-hospital care. That's what paramedics do. Mm. Um, Whereas what the doctors and nurses bring out is the, the those sort of hospital interventions, and unless you're regularly doing those hospital interventions in hospital, you're probably not current and competent enough to bring them to the roadside. And I think what we probably need to see on if we're expanding the role, the traditional role, particularly the paramedic, is to see paramedics coming into hospital more um, and spending some time in major trauma centres, you know, seeing how things are managed within the hospital, uh, within the emergency department, within the operating theatres, to then take those skills back out into the road. And that's where I think we, we interesting, we, we had some dabblers with it um, in Oxford. We had some dabbles with it during COVID uh, because the HEM service was very quiet when we were locked down. I can say the Q word now because it's like 18 months in the past. Yeah, um, I'm not in shifts, so I don't really mind. <laughs> <laughs> Um, whereas, you know, and, and we dabbled with it, but I think that that was seemed to be, uh, my, my impression was that that was pretty successful and was pretty well received by our CCPs. So yeah, sure. I, I think that's something we probably need to, to all work on a little bit more. If we're going to, if we're going to increase the, the, the breadth of practice open to people, we have to be, you know, clear enough in our heads that we're, we've got the right team doing the right things at the right time. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see. Uh, and I say, I think it's the, the important thing is you, you're not getting hung up on who can do what you're just making sure that the the team is capable and you've got the right capability in the right places yeah and i think that's also that's the kind of the, the way to think about it isn't it I, I, it's it's certainly I, I was thinking in terms of my practice for me the mindset and psychology of things are always the the bigger um the bigger thing to get my head around and to and to mm. really learn about myself in terms of practice and it's one of the things i reflect on quite often is um the like you say just having that in-hospital experience and exposure is Mm -hmm. such a hugely beneficial thing to practice because certainly to take thoracostomies for example so as a paramedic i've never put a scalpel to skin because you Mm -hmm. don't do that in training you don't you know we we do some time in theaters but you don't spend any time with the surgeons you spend the time with the anesthetist and so it's just something that's completely alien Mm -hmm. to most ambulance staff Mm -hmm. and then so the idea of putting a hole in someone's chest is mm. hugely off piste and out of the norm for a paramedic. Yep. But then when you go and spend a couple of months in ITU and you see that in the right context, it's a relatively, um, yeah. you know, it's not a huge procedure. 
And no, it's relatively it, straightforward. Yeah, it's, it, yeah and it's, it's kind of normal thing. And so you get in your head, you get this context of actually, okay, this patient's mm-hmm. a major trauma as part of their journey. That's mm-hmm. not going to be a big part of their care. And so yeah. suddenly you don't have all this pressure on you and, and that you kind of frame it in a different context. There's not mm-hmm. such a stressful procedure. And yeah, that really agreed. feeds into being able to do it outside of hospital. Um, yes, yeah. And I think, you know, they are interventions that we do relatively re- rarely and we do have that issue within our teams of how do you maintain that competency and how do you mm-hmm. demonstrate that you can do a, a intervention like that safely mm-hmm. if you don't mm-hmm. have the practice and exposure regularly. Um, and so it kind yeah. of goes back to that training. We do a lot of moulage and and, um, and and training to maintain that skill, but I think it is a, yeah. a kind of ongoing consideration. Yes, um, yeah, I mean, I think... I say, I think, I think... You can you can practice the the mechanics of the skill, you know, in terms of where you move your hands and where you put the where you put the knife and where you put the tubes and so on. But I think the harder thing to practice, I'd say, it's simulation is the the subtleties of of the decision making because you know it, it's very difficult to write a a fifty fifty scenario. You know, it's easy to write a scenario that will force you to put a surgical airway, and that's you know that's relatively straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Whereas it's hard to write a scenario where you 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 push the decision making. Um, it's doable, but it's it's certainly something you have to think about a lot more, um, and I think, but I think it's it's you know very, really really valuable to to sort of push people into a scenario where actually there is not necessarily a right answer. Um, you're you're forcing people to practice thinking through the pros and cons of an intervention, and also thinking about the contextual factors. You know that, and that's certainly something we have to think about a lot more in the military is about. Um, you know, it's not quite clear where you're going. For example, you know, it's not nice. It's not as simple as you're going to go to the major trauma center. Because our bigger facilities, the only real difference between our bigger facilities and our smaller ones in terms of surgical care is that uh, you can have more patients into the bigger facilities, but actually there isn't really a greater amount of surgical capability. There isn't a huge amount. There's, there's a, you can have more, you can have, maybe have two operating tables working at the same time, but each operating table can still provide the same interventions. The surgeons are trained in a similar sort of way. So you don't have that difference of, well, we're going to take everybody to the major trauma center because actually that's not necessarily the, um, the correct intervention. And sometimes you'll have, you'll have situations where you don't necessarily know where you're going to go. You know, you'll, you'll go off to collect a patient and you're not sure which uh, medical facility is going to have the right um, the right capacity and the right capability to deal with what you want. For example, your nearest one might just be full, and you'll have to just fly on to to the next or drive on to the next one. You might not yeah. be able to fly, so you're going to have to drive. And the you know there are, there are the contextual factors that make it more difficult. I think, um, and they're they're quite hard to train for. But that's something we've, we've sort of been been doing a lot more work on recently. Yeah, and I guess I mean I've taken up a lot of your time, so I'll try and I'll try and bring it to a close. But I think. One of the last things to touch on, which I find interesting about education and, and kind mm. of facilitation of learning is, um, so I did a course ages ago about facilitation of learning. And one of the mm-hmm. things that stuck with me from the course director was around how the scenario is essentially an excuse to talk about the scenario afterwards. Mm. And um, I think it's a really interesting way of looking at things is that you kind of, you have to have these scenarios and they had, and they have to be, I guess, kind of relatively high fidelity to gain mm. that experience and, and put people in that mindset. But actually, like you say, you can't you can't really get a scenario right or wrong. You can only make actions that mm. leads to a good discussion point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so ultimately, I, I guess I guess like you say, you can't get it right or wrong. You, you kind of do this scenario, but but what it leads to, if you mm-hmm. if it's facilitated well, is often a really um, a really meaningful kind of discussion. Yeah. around learning points that developed kind of naturally through practice rather than mm-hmm. being bullet pointed on a slide in a lecture yeah yeah i completely agree and that, I say, that, that's where it's very useful like i say for these 50 50 decisions where actually as you say the the scenario provides 
some concrete experience of people with the feeling of what it's like making that decision. And then you can then go into a, a facilitated discussion where the, the team can discuss at what points, you know, who was thinking what at what points during the scenario and what considerations were in the head of the, the various team members. And then you can, if you if you do the debrief right, and I think the easiest thing to do, to be honest, I mean, most intelligent people debrief themselves. So I think, uh, you know, the easiest debrief is the one where I say nothing. Um, if you do that right, then what people will take away is the, the sort of overall experience of that discussion means that they will then know how to make that. They'll short circuit the decision making the next time they have to make it for themselves. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it takes me on to one of the other things that um, I think is, is important for practice and something we do in our program a lot is um, is uh, so we have kind of uh, clinical governance sessions where we debrief jobs mm. and we have our so in practice, um, we have top cover consultants who we can call for, for assistance in decision making things. And mm-hmm. they'll, so they'll assist us in when we're dealing with patients, but also in the clinical governance sessions. Um, mm-hmm. Our consultants will tune in often and mm-hmm. will debrief mm-hmm. cases with them. And mm-hmm. I guess the the same learning points kind of arise. You know, the scenario is, an you know, you've actually treated a patient. Um, mm-hmm. But ultimately, it kind of feeds into the same point that you're having a discussion around yeah. actions that did or didn't happen. Um, yeah. And it's always it's, it's really interesting to, to kind of present that case, because like you say, you um, hopefully debrief a job by yourself, just driving mm-hmm. back from it or, or whatever. And you kind of think of learning points and good and bad points. And then to present that to a team of peers mm-hmm. and um, and get feedback from people with more experience or, or different experiences provides such valid kind of learning. Mm-hmm. Um, is that, I mean, clinical governance is obviously a standard part of, of most teams, but is that, is that something you have a lot of yeah. Um, yeah. involvement it's, it's... with? Yeah, and I, it's not it's not something I do from the, the military side, but yeah, definitely certainly my civilian practice. You know, it's it, it's a huge part of the learning from jobs. You know, as you say, whether they're simulated or real, is that discussion about at what point, what what members of the team were thinking at individual points all the way through, so that they um, can reflect on what what they would do the same again and what they would do perhaps differently, and also it's quite good for the rest of the team to hear that too, because it means that they're, when they're, you know, the next time they're faced with a similar decision, they can sort of reach back into that experience bank that they've, they've gained from their colleagues. And hopefully means that if, and it, it you know, it happens to the best of us, you know, a job doesn't necessarily go the way that we would want it to. It means that people can reach back into that experience and whatever mistakes have been made, you know, the rest of the team can learn from them. And then hopefully the, you know, as a team, everyone gets better. Um, but I think it's, it's interesting how that works and it requires a lot of trust on behalf of the team to, to, to deliver that, you know, in a way that, you know, is, is, is definitely trying to help everybody rather than necessarily being seen as a punitive thing. And that's something I think we're still not there with, with the NHS. I think we're we're getting there, and I think most sort of specialist pre-hospital services are pretty good at it. But I think you know the NHS as a whole still has a way to go, to to understand that you know root cause analysis and so on. If it, it has to be done in a in a sort of psychologically safe way for everybody, if it's going to actually benefit the patients in, in the future. Yeah, absolutely, and I think so. It's something that's changed a lot in in um, certainly ambulance kind of paramedic practice. I think you know I've 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 only been doing the job less than ten years, and I think even when I joined it was certainly a lot less reflective than it is now mm-hmm. I think there's been a lot of work in that which is really positive um, mm-hmm. I think there, there are kind of difficulties with, with that is that um you know so, so my team um who I uh, debrief and have clinical governance with mm-hmm. we're relatively small so there's maybe around 10 of us mm-hmm. and we all know each other very well and so immediately there's an element of trust and you can kind mm-hmm. of understand um mm-hmm. 
how people work and how to safely feed back to people, um, yep. which is difficult in a kind of hot debrief with people that you don't know how mm. you can identify things that could have gone better mm-hmm. um, whilst also saying, you know, they did, the, like we all did the best we could. And in that scenario, um, we all provided excellent care, but there are still some learning points. It's, it's hard to kind of feed that back in without people receiving mm-hmm. that information and feeling like um, they're being apportioned blame or apportioning some blame to themselves. Yeah. I think it's a really difficult kind of complex um, yes. thing to manage. Very much is. I mean, one of the ways that we do, for example, is that we would try and have an internal team debrief first before a wider clinical governance meeting. And that just helps get everyone straight in their heads about what happened, what decisions were made and why. Because sometimes even within a small team, it's quite hard. You know, it, it, At the time, it's very hard to necessarily be absolutely clear on who's done what exactly and why. And that sort of having to come together as a team to go through all that is very helpful. It also means that the team can be sure about what, they, what the learning points they found before they then spread that to a wider forum. And I think that's really helpful because if you... You, you, you're right. It's it's very hard to be have that sort of open discussion with people who you don't necessarily know who weren't necessarily there. And it's, I think it's important to do, but I think it helps if you've kind of got the the story straight amongst the team, not in a kind of you know like collusional way, but in a way that everyone really understands exactly what happened and what learning points that they want to be shared with the wider team before necessarily share it with people who might not have been there, might not necessarily understand all the context. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. Um, but you know. I think, and ultimately, you know, like you say, it's kind of improving, and I think it's such an important thing, and it's it's something to, um, like I say, I think we, I'm lucky in 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 my practice that because I'm a specialist, we're kind of afforded mm. the opportunity to engage in that, and I think um, many people aren't so lucky that they do have that opportunity, but I feel like it's such an important thing to try and feed into the, like you say, to the wider NHS because mm. ultimately, one of the things that took me a while to um to accept is that you can't you know we can't always provide 100 percent. well we pretty much never can provide 100 percent effective care mm-hmm. and there seems to be an expectation whether it's from other people or or more from ourselves that we should be able to do that and any mm-hmm. level of error is unacceptable mm-hmm. um, and ultimately obviously we can't and um error is acceptable but the mm-hmm. it's acceptable only in the context of kind of learning from it and sharing those lessons yeah, I think it's a pretty fair point, Rin. Um, fine. I, like I said, I've taken up a lot of your time and I've gone through the, the various points I wanted to discuss. Um, was there anything else you'd like to add in terms of your kind of military or pre-hostile experience to the discussion that we haven't we haven't discussed? Oh, I don't know. I think it's been fairly comprehensive, to be honest. Um, I can't, nothing, nothing really leaps into my head that we, we haven't discussed that I think would be useful. So no, I'm happy. I'm sure it will as soon as we stop I'm talking. I'm sure it will as soon as, yeah, as, soon as we stop talking. We'll, we'll, we'll both go off going, ah, I should have asked that. Never mind. That one thing I was going to say. Yeah. Fine. All right. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. It's been um, it's been really interesting to talk and, uh, and to hear about your experience. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, hopefully I can speak to you again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 